We the City is recorded on Gadigal land. I pay my respects to the traditional custodians, the elders, past, present, and emerging. Just a heads up, this episode contains some adult language. Art. Activism. Identity. Diving deep with one artist a week, we meet the individuals who use their art to trigger change in the city of Sydney. Who are they and what's their story? Stick around to find out on We The City. Today on We The City, I catch up with Toby Zotes, who is a queer punk artist, works in the mediums of painting, animation, film, writing and cartooning. Here's Toby. Thank you so much for joining me, Toby. Um, I wanted to ask if you could describe your art aesthetic for people listening. I'm one of those children who started reading from an early age, that's number one. So things like Noddy and Big Ears and um, I quickly moved on to comic books. And so when I get to thinking about my aesthetic, I think up things like Robert Crumb and his Zap comics really influenced me a lot. I'm a movie freak, so I saw a lot of movies. I really like when they put animation with live action, like in Mary Poppins or there's a famous animator called Ralph Bakshi who did live action into animation. So what are my other aesthetics? As a boy also, teenager, I would get my hands on art books from libraries and I'd just stare into them from Van Gogh to um, Albrecht Dürer, um, Picasso, Hieronymus Bosch really appealed to me a lot, um, Bruegel the Elder, old Bruegel's work, like, you know, scenes of life, basically, Bruegel and Bosch did all those little tiny figures, right? And you get a whole panorama, which I really like that. But I also like Toulouse-Lautrec where you get bigger figures and he's depicting life in the cabaret halls of Paris. I'm really into the human condition. What are people up to? What do they suffer? What do they think? Particularly, I suppose, poorer people because that's where I come from. But... um. Looking at the rich too, you know, what? Are, how do they live? What's the problem? What's their existential angst? Mm-hmm. So I'm drawing that all the time. Some of those uh, scenes you were describing um, and that kind of aesthetic as a young boy, those, those things you were looking at, what was your environment that you were kind of getting lost in these places as an escape? I grew up in social housing um, in a very somewhat infamous a state in Melbourne called the Olympic Village. And it was a place where as soon as the Olympic athletes left in 1956, they handed it over to working class people. Up until that point, my parents, who'd both come back from the World War, Second World War, they came back without finding jobs because there weren't many jobs available at that point. So we moved from house to house to house. Finally, we get our own flat in this social housing estate, which to us was paradise, you might say. We finally got our own place, but it was very tough. Most 
kids I hung out with didn't read, and they're not just comic books. They didn't read books either, but I did. Movies and books and music, you know, those three things. So um, I sadly experienced a lot of domestic violence where I, my mum and dad fought all the time, and so I escaped into books. And I'm lucky my parents noticed it, so even though they spent their money on gambling and alcohol, they still made sure I got the books I wanted. That's what I got for Christmas and birthdays, lots of books. You know, my dream was to one day write books and publish, and it took me, I'm a late developer in some ways. I mean, I got distracted with other things, painting, poster making, filmmaking, short story writing, but now I've finally got around to novels, and I'm, I'm very happy and we will get to that soon. I, uh, I wanted to talk about, so you grew up in Melbourne. You arrived in Sydney in 1977. I wondered if you could tell us how old you were and what were your first impressions of Sydney? I was 27 in 1977. I actually was on my way to London. I'd worked somewhere and saved the money. I came to Sydney for an ACDC concert that were playing at the Haymarket. ACDC were only charging, well, five bucks to get in and with a small fence around the area, they're like waist high. So we didn't even pay the $5, right? We climbed over it. There's only about 300 people there and I got to dance with Bon Scott and I was really, really happy. I looked around Sydney and by 27 I was painting a lot and I saw the light of Sydney. It was a, It's a beautiful light here to paint by and um. I got told about Darlinghurst squats if I needed somewhere to crash the next day. So I went there and I got to see this squatting movement. Um, you know, free rent can really help if you want to do something like art or whatever. That's one cost taken care of. What else? The music scene here. When I got here in Sydney, I found a lot of venues, a lot of really good bands playing and Basically, that increased, or what's the word, it grew bigger and the band's better. I mean, finally you get to 1981 and Divinals, I saw them at the Trade Union Club and they blew me away, really, and I danced with Chrissy Amphlett. I followed her and the band around New South Wales all through the 80s. And there are other great bands as well, of course, the grunge movement with bands like Box the Jesuit, Lubricated Goat, Munro's Fur, then Died Pretty, Nunbait, The Scientists. I can go on and on. There was a lot of bands. It was a great. So, you know, I, I end up giving up my idea of going to London. I thought, no, you know, Sydney's a good place. It's my own country. I grew up here. I know Australia. If I'm going to write and paint, I can you know, I'll paint what I know. I'll paint here where I grew up. And um, I had that silly idea that I could contribute to Australia. But, it, you know, it's semi-nonsense because um, you only end up contributing if you're from a good background here and then they take notice and show you around. But um, when you're on the streets, you don't crack the big time, but you still... Um, get to be with the people themselves. And I went to UTS from 83 to 92, 91. 
And then, in, you know, back in that day, there was only that tall, brutalist building. I love my communications course. You know, I really, I try, I actually, I tried to um, get into the National Art School mm-hmm. and I, I had to meet the dean of the National Art School and he didn't like me on site. I suspect that my reputation had preceded me. Anyway, I got knocked back cold from entering that art school. They did me an incredible favour, though, because as far as I can see, they ruin a lot of artists who go in there. Maybe some good ones come out, but um, I went down the street to UTS. I had a mentor once a long time ago, and he told me, aim for the small stages, not the big ones, and I followed his advice, so I've done really small stages all my life, and that's why I like Sydney. You mentioned um, the Darlinghurst squats. I was wondering if you could tell us some of the places you lived when you first got to Sydney. Well, I stayed in Darlinghurst squats for one year, but it kind of, um, it was very rough there. And being just down the hill from King's Cross, a lot of, what do we call these types? I mean, I love outlaws and all the rest, deadbeats. I mean, this all describes me, but it just, I, I, I've never got into heroin even once in my life. So when a whole lot of substance abusers get around you and they're stealing everything and blah, blah, blah. So after, you know, there were good people there though, but after a year I couldn't ha- handle it. And um, up on Victoria Street, there was a terrace that they were, terrace house they were trying to save. Um, the Green Bands... What was that? Oh, God, it's gone out of my head. The famous man behind Green Bands? Jack Mundy. Jack Mundy was in on this and people like Wendy Bagan and other. So I slept there for a, a week or so, but I couldn't handle that either. It was all falling down and there were no working toilets mm. and one has to have a working toilet. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> so I heard of a bunch of squats in Piermont, well, houses that were up for grabs. So I went over there and had a look. There were 30 houses, I would say, um, 21 down below on Scott Street and about another 10 or so, 7 or so up on the ridge. Anyway, so I grabbed this little house in Scott Street that was the only one left. The reason no one took it was the roof was leaking, but I tried over all the years to patch it, but I never did work. Doesn't matter. I was there for 12 years. Can believe it or not? In one front tumble down cottage. I, I, I'm a, when I'm on a good thing, I stick to it. I mean, what do you call I'm a barnacle on a rock. It's very hard to move me off once I figure I've got somewhere. So I was able to paint. I made a, my first few films there, like The Thief of Sydney. And um, a strange circumstance is that the history of the very street that I lived in and even the house I lived in, there's a famous painter called Sully Herman who painted that street, Scott Street, and he painted my house particularly that I lived in, or let's call it a cottage, in the very cottage next door to me. I lived in number six. In number eight, a very famous painter called John Santry grew up. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's truly great. Mm -hmm. So it's a really, for me, synchronicity type, you know, like I get to live in this street with other artists live and I mean, I'm up myself a bit talking about all this, but it's still that coincidence impresses me. And in fact, it does in all aspects of life when you find connections like that. So there you go. I'm, um, we try to get those squats handed to us as a cooperative, but 
the state finally didn't come to the party. And in 1990, they offered us housing department flats because they wanted that block of houses themselves. So all the trouble we went to was for naught. We got housing department and I've been in my housing department flat for 32 years. I mean, that shows you how tenacious I am. 1978, just one year after you arrived in Sydney, it was a momentous year for gay rights in Sydney. Can you tell us where you were and what happened? I was working in the um, tin sheds making posters with the what you would call radical artists of the day who were into things like feminism and um, curry rights and uh, my I, there were there was one gay woman there, and I was meeting a few gays around town. Everything that happened in the city, the tin sheds people knew about, and they told me there was going to be a rally up on Oxford Street. And in '78, there were three rallies, protest marches. The first one, coming down towards High Park, got stopped by the cops. They tried to. There was a truck blaring disco music. Um, the guy driving the truck called Lance Gowling, the cops dragged him out of the truck trying to arrest him. Lesbians and gay men fought to try and get him out of their hands. After a big tussle, they still managed to drag the guy away. Everyone was quite furious and um, they got it in. I was there for the protest, but other people wanted a party, mm-hmm. which is a Good, right? You know, street parties are great. So they decided they'd go up King's Cross and have this street party. I mean, the whole purpose of the rally was to protest our sexuality and fight that illegal thing of same sex. Then they had a second one. That was in um, June. In July, they had another one. But this time, walking down Knoxville Street on a gorgeous sunny day, Nothing happened. They didn't. No one hassled us, and we had a great day. Then in August, we decided to again. There was a conference up in Paddington Town Hall, and we walked down Oxford Street. And as we hit Taylor Square, there was a phalanx of police who attacked us just straight out. And I'm now in the middle of it all, and we had a huge tussle, you might say, um, the police punching and kicking. They love, they go, you know, police are misogynist back in the day. I don't know about now, but um, they went for the women always, dragging them around by their hair, punching the women, blah, 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 blah. Us guys, yeah, we got punched. I got kicked in the head. I, um, I had a video camera and it got knocked out of my hand and when I, it was being kicked around on the ground like a football and when I went down to try and retrieve it, I got kicked in the head. A lot of people, how many got arrested that day? 30 or so. And um, again, as the police were grabbing and punching, I I mean, I, I would have liked to have been arrested, but it just didn't happen. I was, I've learned as a street person to not particularly hand yourself to the cop, but certainly as they're grabbing to duck their mitts. So I was ducking and weaving and all the rest, and I didn't get grabbed and I didn't get arrested. And um, But other people did, and we stood outside again, that police station, yammering and screaming all night till they got released on bail the next morning. And that's the story of the whole thing. From then on in, we every year we celebrated. And, of course, we all know how it evolved. How did it evolve, for those who don't know? It turned into a huge party, like exactly what 
my fellow LGBTQRSTVDWXYZ, um, what they were aiming for happened. We have a giant Mardi Gras now. Um, some people find it too much gone in the way of partying and losing the politics of it, although the parade, often half of the floats still are protests like parents for gay people and health services and whatever. Then the other half are banks and, I mean, insurance companies and shit like that. So they decided to move it into the Sydney cricket ground, which quite honestly I enjoyed. As an old man, I got led to my seat and made sure I was comfy and they got me a drink and blah, blah, blah. And it was nice to watch. But there's another group called um, Pride in Protest and there are younger people who don't like the commercialism and the police marching and everything, and I don't like it either. So they continue the protest march up Oxford Street at the daytime and this other thing happens at night. And um, I'll get back to the point in that early 78 affair I went to protest. The treatment of we, we receive us, let's we'll just call us queers, right? That um, when you grow up, when you're criminalised, you find it hard to get a job. You find it hard to, to even rent a room. You're spat on as you walk down the street. You're beaten up. I had my front teeth kicked out when I was 17. Um, it got to a point. Just we couldn't stand it any longer. And once the police attack us and are beating the shit out of us, we fight back. We could not put up with this one day more. And, of course, it took another um, five years before we got decrimmed, 83, 84. And um, still that's a long struggle, right? And, you know, you don't get what it would be like to grow up and you're a criminal, you're a beast of the night, you're twisted. You get told either you're going to end up suiciding because it's so bad or you'll go to jail because you're a criminal or you might even go to a mental hospital and get shock treatment and you'll get converted. Isn't it lovely? And um, I mean, really, imagine. And some of us are gutsy. So we couldn't stand it. One And, you know, there's a point where we're still struggling for different things. We got marriage, which is pretty cool, but um, we've got to think of all those people around the world who are criminals in their own countries and now try to do shit for them, you know. It's an ongoing struggle. Now, one of the things I, I really admire and love in your artworks, in particular cartoons, is that they hold no punches. They really cut straight through to what you're thinking about the politics uh, and kind of the society that you are uh, addressing can you tell me a little bit about your artistic process? Often I've got to be in my bonnet. Now that we're in the 2020s and the world is on fire and the, you know, the climate change and neo-fascism is rising, um, poor old refugees are put in concentration camps, there's a lot of things to really be uptight about and to protest and talk about and I'm not interested in a lovely blurred painting of someone, you know, sitting in a chair and it doesn't really tell me a thing. I mean, it might have pretty colours, but um, it's important to me that the work has meaning and it's called narrative art. So what are you, what's the narrative? What are you talking about? And um, I'm, I'll get a bee in my bonnet in the night, like, oh, I'm really upset the way curries are being treated. So I'll 
do a cartoon involving that. What do you hope your art can do for people who experience it? It's my being, my bonnet that I'm talking about, and I can't speak for someone else what happens to them in their head. I, I guess um, I majored in writing at UTS, and it, when I did it in the 80s, it was a fairly left-wing um, campus, and so you taught in communication how to influence or what to influence people with. And as I spoke just then, I would like to talk about climate change or um, the treatment of curries, particularly, or the treatment of prisoners in our jails. And I would like it if I could at least get a discussion going mm-hmm. and thinking about it instead of just wiping it out or going back to that plate of food or the selfie. Yeah, because often you will have the very strong imagery um, and then you'll couple that with really strong messaging as well. So, for example, the um, the cop on top of the black person and them saying, I can't breathe. Um, the Koori person, the Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Well, you know, that was worldwide. And here in Australia, we have this terrible... I mean, I don't want to say just even problem. Fact that Kuris, original first Australians, are being murdered in jail at a higher, the deaths in custody are at a much higher rate proportion to the population, and they're jailed in greater proportion. And for all the bullshit patronising lip service, oh, we've done a lot for Kuris and blah 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 blah. I mean, their treatment generally is shocking and. I've been told, oh, can't you do more positive? You know, what about the curries that have made it in society? Why don't you do more about that positive stuff? And I think, yeah, okay, you know, and I'd love to do one on Adam Goods. I'm planning it in the future because he's one of my heroes. But to always look the other way, you know, to try and whitewash, you know, what's going on here and, the treatment of curries around the, just even this city, but certainly out in the sticks, they're having their land still taken from them. They're still having their kids taken from them. It's all this bullshit with the apology is a snow job. And um, I talk to enough curries and read enough to know that it's still not cool what's happening. We've got to really lift our game. I wanted to ask you um, if there has been a piece that has been particularly um, memorable or significant that you've created that's been perhaps really cathartic in its creation that you could tell us about? It's really hard to choose. I mean, I've done hundreds and hundreds (laughs) of paintings and I like all of them. They're like my children. But um, I suppose if I really had to focus on something and it seemed to have impressed a fair amount of people and that's that animated short film The Thief of Sydney. Mm -hmm. I I wrote the story in 79 after thinking about things like The Thief of Baghdad, um, The Time Machine, um, Logan's Run, um, John Janae's Thief's Journal. I mulched it all down into my own story semi-science fiction to rock and roll. This got premiered at um, the Academy Twin back in the day. But as the cartoon wore on, they all really liked it. I got a furious applause at the end. and um, So, yeah, I really like that. 
And at the end of a movie, you can feel when an audience liked it because there's a buzz in the air when you can feel when they didn't like it because it's like all glum, dead silence. Everyone shuffles out with their hangdog looks. So, yeah, I love being with audiences. It's yeah. great. Yeah. I, um, I think the most incredible experience I've had in my kind of career is having my film be watched in a cinema full of people with other people and if other people don't know that you were there while you're watching your film as well because you get to see other people's reactions. And what was your film? So I made The Eviction, which is a feature documentary about the um, public housing being sold in the Rocks and Millers Point. So that happened in 2014. Mm. So I filmed from 2014 onwards. That's very similar to the activist projects we took on in the 70s and 80s. And the story you want me to read from happened in about 1981 or 80. I mean, early, really early on. So it's history repeating itself, really. Yeah, well, gentrification and this elite grabbing everything for themselves and the lower wage earners and the poor unemployed or whatever get left for what? With You know, we can't even get um, social housing now. They've really, they don't want to fund that, which is pathetic, really. I mean, the Labor government in Victoria are building more, but here, the Liberals, they just couldn't give a shit if we're all on the street. So it's a really important subject. They're doing it in Glebe as well. They're selling all that public housing in Glebe. Yeah. Which is a real shame. Yes. We're, they're also trying to get everyone out of Waterloo and sort of where, where I live in Northcote, which is just behind Central, and we're waiting. When when are they coming for us? Half of the um, residents actually are those workers who are in the service industry, some waiters, et cetera, et cetera, and... Um, Without them, the city couldn't function. So, you know, there's got to be some kind of public housing. And we're in billionaires' row there at Surrey Hills. Mm. But if those billionaires want, uh, you know, a waiter or a butler or a chauffeur or whatever, they've got to have somewhere to live. Yeah. I mean, and Northcote's one of the places. Without a diverse uh, community mix, the city just falls apart. Has living in Northcote uh, influenced your art? One, it's given me a secure place to do it from. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I was basically on the street at 17 and I couch surfed. I would go from room to room to room to room. I ended up on the street for five years overseas and here. Squatting is not far from the street, I can tell you, like... 13 years in squats, so um, to me, to have a flat like the little one I've got, and I've been there 32 years now, it's wonderful. And um, I have my animation camera. I turned the bedroom into a studio and I sleep in the lounge room and I had my animation camera. I made my second film, Virgin Beast, there with a lot of animation. I paint there, I write there, I draw there. The main influence is security, I'd say, you know, really you can't do it on the street. What's some other things? Is I get I'm close to the street there though. I can see what happens with poor people, with the mentally ill. You're still it's, connected. You're not cut off. Yeah, and it's what what do they call it? Grist for the mill. So you said you were on your own at seventeen. Is that because you came out? 
I came out at 17. To all my friends, I found it hard to come out with my mum and dad. But they knew. They saw from when I was a little boy what I was. My dad used to try to beat it out of me, and um, which is impossible. So, yeah, I, I remember I started hanging around rock and roll clubs at 16. I met a rock and roll drummer who I fell in love with, but he was straight. But we both ran away from home at 17 and got a, rented a little flat together. He didn't last very long there. But again, I'm a tenacious dude, so I lasted on my own out there in the world. You've spent a lot of time in Sydney now. Uh, which spaces have played a role in your art practice and what made them special? First of all, Piermont Squats, where I had a community who um, half of them were trouble, but the other half were really supportive. And if we had any trouble with the police or anyone, they were always there to back me up. Half of them worked with me on my films. They built models for me. I premiered actually The Thief of Sydney there on a dirty sheet in the backyard of the squats. And um, they were really great people. Some of them are my friends to this day. So um, there was another squat from 85 to 91 in Moolamaloo called The Gunnery. And I hung out there nearly every day because... A lot of the people there were artists also and we put on rock shows and they had an art gallery there. We had a um, small theatre in the dome where they used to practice shooting. We um, put on cabaret there. So that was a great space. It had its problems. There's a story about it in my book, Shoot em Up at the Gallery, and I guess just from the title you can figure out what's going on, but um, it was really great space. Then there's the... Cafe on King's Cross, the piccolo, that I hung around nearly every night till dawn. And old Vittorio was like um, a shaman running this seance for deadbeats and freaks. A lot of really cool people came there. Rock and rollers, actors, deadbeats, bums, freaks. It was really cool. So that's another space, okay? There's lots of them around, tin sheds, poster workshop. That was cool. I made a lot of great posters there and my friends made them and we're a pretty well-known crew from there. I could go on and on and on. I read that you've also worked as a palliative care nurse. Did this have any emotional impact on your artwork and has it impacted how you view the end of life? Definitely. Um, When you sit with hundreds of dying people until they're They've died. So they're gone, yeah. Um, you know, you really know what life's about because it has an ending and you can't pretend it doesn't and you see it in front of you. For me, it, I thought, well, you know, in the face of this, I'm going to go out and live and I'm going to grab life by the throat because we're only here for a short time and why waste it? I mean, we've all got to work, but I, 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 I live by the philosophy of giving 50% of my time to straight jobs and the other 50% of going out and have a life, travelling the world, putting on shows, going to other people's shows. I mean, 50% of your life's fair enough. To give 100% so you can mount up possessions and shit, that's not living to me. So, yeah, and the other thing with nursing is um, you have to take on a lot of responsibility. And um, I was a charge nurse often, so the buck stopped with me and that was interesting because I had to be on my toes Nearly every night there'd be an emergency, someone bleeding to death or dying or whatever, and I'd have to solve it. Um, I learned multitasking, is that what it's called? Where I had to do 21 things. 
at one time, and I, I've always could do it, but I had to do it as a nurse, and I like that too. I wouldn't have put out the book or even made it to this podcast if I didn't, if I wasn't able to multitask. And um, so there was a lot, you know, it was an honourable job, really. And you know, um, I I started at eighteen, and um, I ended up in third year. Um, what would you call it, specialising in palliative care. I just saw that I like being with old people or brain-damaged people or whatever and being with them as they died. And um, I learned a big lesson in my early 20s when I was living in India. A ment- my mentor of the time, who was an art teacher and a yogi, he was, was dying of cancer and I had to nurse him till he died in um, the Himalayas. And when you nurse your best friend... You learn how to do it with true compassion and true love. And from then on in, when I worked in all the nursing homes and hospitals and shit, I tried to treat the people as I treated him, you know, like you try to treat them like your mother and father. What would you do if it was your mother? You don't pull them around by their hair, you know. You try to do it gentle, soft, caring. I mean, I don't come on in a saccharine way. I love, how are you today? I don't do that either. I mean, you've got to be very matter of fact mm. and be able to concentrate when an emergency happened you can't run around screaming like some of my assistants did you had to go cold yeah. and one pointed and think what is the solution to this and um sure helped me all through life I can tell you in 1982 you're a part of a panel mural in King's Cross can you talk about the imagery in Choke and what the cross was like then? Well, we're back to housing. The imagery in Choke was um, the three different kinds of housing that are available in our society. We've got, well, actually four, but down the bottom are squatting and the people on the streets. Then the next level is social housing, where if you're lucky enough, you'll get a little house, not palatial or anything, but at least it's something and it's secure to a degree. Then you've got middle-class housing, um, which is a fairly, again, you've got to, right nowadays, sadly, you've got to have a million dollars to get it. And then on top of it, all of these super elite and um, all the rest of us can choke, you know, because they they got the um, terrace houses in Victoria Street and the rocks and all, and they're five million each and upwards. So, you know, just that Mural talks about that subject matter and um, what was King's Cross like? You know, for, for me, I'm a deadbeat myself and um, I'm an outlaw, mostly because I was criminalised as a queer. Um, I had to do very hard things to stay alive, hang out with, you know, I mean, it's historical, really. If you read John Janay and other writers like him, because... Being queer is criminalised. You tend to hang with criminals. You're at you're the demi monde. You're at the bottom of society, and um, so King's Cross is like that: prostitutes, drug addicts, thieves, corrupt police. I mean, it was a real. I mean, I wouldn't say that's how I always wanted to be. It had such tough parts to it. Now it's changed and it's gentrified to a great degree, and we could all say, "Oh, it's not the same." and we miss it, and I, I'm happy that people are safer now and um, 
the shooting gallery is a great move because before that people just died on the streets and I know many, many, many who died. Now with things like that, needles handed out. Before, in the 80s, you couldn't get needles. So they would beg at a chemist or they'd go steal them or they'd shoot up with dirty needles, right? It was fucking shocking. And um, so, there's, you know, I like those improvements. Now let's talk about this recent book, Punk Outsider. Where did the urge come from and what what was it that meant you wanted the words and the images together to tell this story? There was something about life in Sydney that I really wanted to express. Um, the streets, the human condition, um, poverty, rock and roll, the nightclubs, the cafes, blah, blah, blah. You know, I really wanted to talk about that era. I really wanted to do Sydney from when I arrived, 77, up to the, say, the 90s. And um, the whole story is about the travail of the artist who is not connected, who didn't come from a top art school, who doesn't come from money. Um, what is the obstacle course that artist has to run? And I wrote it all in that book, the filmmaking and everything the squatting, and um, I've been able to put the art with it, which for me, you know, like it's phenomenal. You don't just read about it, then you see what the, this artist did. And there's all the history of it right from the beginning, first poster I made up to about the last poster I've done and um, all the rock and roll posters and blah, 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 blah. That's amazing. What a good companion for the visual element of it. Uh, tell us about the title. What does it mean? It's from a, a long 50 more years ago. I mean, in the... 40s for sure, they were already using the word punk. The street delinquent, the loser, the wastrel, the scoundrel, the, the no good deadbeat. It means all these things, as putting them down as a queer when often the person is not, but it's a slur, right? Um, then, of course, punk culture erupted in the 70s with the music and the dress code and the attitude. So, um, I've concluded all that in a story called The Punk's Night Out in Oz where I, I talk about the culture but all the meanings of it and I talk about the music, the nightclubs. You get it all there. And um, Outsider, well, you know, especially as an artist, if you read the story, the artist as outsider and you get the fact that because of both the background of a person, if they come from poor family, they didn't go to an elite school, this is all held against them. Then um, the content of the art, if it's radical, if you're saying something about society that conservative people don't like, so you become an outsider, you're not included in shows. You're, I've never been invited up to the Art Gallery of New South Wales and I don't want to go there. I mean, that's the other side of the question. Someone said to me, oh, Toby, you placed yourself on the edge of the herd. It's a double-edged sword. I was pushed there, but I also like being there. I like being on the edge of the herd. I don't want to be in the centre where it's safe and it's mediocre and boring. I'm on the edge. It's dangerous. It's wild. And you know what happens to creatures on the edge of the herd. They're the ones most likely to be picked off by lions or whatever. So that's what punk outsider means. It sounds like it's a very good title and I really uh, look forward to reading this book. Ah, uh, thanks. 
stunts of the Sydney Situationists. Housing was another issue that burned in Arthur's heart. Constantly aware of the need for a roof over his head, he got involved in tenants' issues and the preservation of old buildings. He participated in many sieges, his gang once barricading themselves into a terrace house in Campbell Street, Surrey Hills, filling the whole lower floor with trash and old furniture. They spent weeks encamped up on the barbed wire balcony with objects to hurl down upon any thugs who dared break in. Cops and security guards eventually smashed their way up into the fortress, Artie and friends making their escape out a back window. A block of colonial houses at the Rocks and Circular Quay had been left to rot and, ready for demolition, they cried out for rescue. A collection of outrage activists and desperately homeless paupers decided to squat one of the buildings as a challenge to the city council. Only a few of them had previous experience at cracking a squat, but in cooperative laziness, they allowed one nice middle-class girl named Katie (laughs) to take over as activist leader, issuing orders and mumbling platitudes, proving herself to be a placid nincompoop. (laughs) (laughs) with revolutionary pretensions. Poor Katie. Arthur kept his mouth shut, doing as she suggested, going the way of least resistance, eschewing the role of leader, not wanting to be anybody's hero. They broke through a cyclone fence guarding the premises, then crept through a back door and energetically set to barricading all entrances The security company in charge of the property soon discovered their infiltration and brought the cops into play, accompanied by the fire brigade and a crowd of reporters, sightseers and well-wishers. After barricading the doors and filling the stairwell with broken furniture, the intrepid squatters adjourned to the upstairs room where they threw jibes at the ham-fisted authorities, smashing their way through the windows below while the crowd cheered and laughed. Arthur operatically flung oranges at the intruders' heads, each golden orb snatched out of the air by his excited audience, milling about every throw an impossible catch till the crowd was roaring over the antics of the anarcho circus clown toby thank you so much for joining me today okay it was enjoyable as you can see i can't shut my mouth once i open it <laughs> that's the idea of a podcast so you've yeah. done very well thank you so much okay nice meeting you and talking to you We the City is a Jaboa production, hosted by me, Lulucine. The City of Sydney is our principal partner, and we thank the Creative Grants Program. This episode was produced by Lulucine and Tegan Nichols, with original music by Matt Cornell. We the City is recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>